All right, good morning, everyone. All right, so now we are on question 40 in our study of the larger catechism, and uh, we reach the next logical question in our little mini-series on the mediator, and I apologize in advance uh, for the bags under my eyes. I'm very tired this morning. Presbytery was very exhausting. As most of you know, most of you were here for it. <clears throat> um, but we're going to soldier through this. The plan, Lord willing, is to get through at least three questions this morning, um, but let's just see what the Lord has in store for us. Let me open us with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Uh, we thank you for the rain that you are bringing on our land, uh, as we did indeed have a dry summer uh, this last summer. So we thank you for all the rain that you will give us. Uh, we pray that you will be with us in our study of the Catechism and our, uh, our learning of our Mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would learn more of you uh, in our study of this, and uh, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Pray that you would be with us in our fellowship and our worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I'll read question 40, and uh, let's, let's respond together in unison. All right, why it, uh, was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator, who was to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Okay, so uh, the answer is really kind of two main points to make here. Uh, that our mediator who reconciles man to God, right, um, and, and that's what a mediator does, right, uh, is one person with two natures, so that, uh, number one, each nature might be accepted uh, of God for us, and then, number two, relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Now, rather than talking about each one of these points individually, I kind of want to expound on some more broader ideas um, that address these topics. Um, so we will answer, we will talk about these topics, but um, the first thing that I want to address here is this idea of the idea of potentially having two mediators, okay? The divines and, and our orthodox doctrine <clears throat> has asserted that Christ, our divine mediator, had to come as one person with two natures, two distinct natures, okay? Um, so my question is, could it have been possible for God to provide two mediators, one divine and then one man. Could it have been accomplished that way? Could he have done it that way? Could he have achieved salvation in that manner, right? What do you guys think? Why or why not? Could he, could he have done it that way? What do you think? Is it possible? What do you think? I mean, he's God, right? Do anything. Why? Because... Exactly, that's right, very good. The works of each nature alone um, isn't sufficient to save anyone. The two natures must be united in one person, right? For example, just like Vinny said, if you remember, we talked about a divine mediator could not experience um, suffering, 
right? That would be change on his part. You need a human mediator for that, right? But a human mediator cannot experience the level of suffering required, the full wrath of God. You need the divine mediator to sustain him, okay? Therefore, it's necessary uh, not only that the mediator be both God and man, but that he be both in one person so that their work will have unity, that it will be perfectly accomplished together. It's when these two, it's when these two natures come together fully okay, in one person that they are acceptable to God as our mediator. Okay? Second thing I want to point out is that this truth is necessary because it's, it's faithful to Scripture's account of Christ. Okay? There's many passages in Scripture that... Um, in, well, I'll say in which it's, it's proper um, attributes that one of, one of Christ's natures is referred to the other natures. One of God's natures is referred to his, his human natures, okay? Uh, and the only way to have true unity of the text is to affirm a unity of Christ's person, okay? In other words, Jesus has to be one person with two natures. Let me give you an example, okay? In Acts 20, 28, we, we read this. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so here we have blood, which is part of Christ's human nature, okay, associated with the name God, okay, which obviously belongs to his divine nature. So, in other words, his human nature can bleed, right? But can God bleed? No. Right, but the text says God bought the church with his blood. Well, the only way that makes sense is if Jesus, our mediator, is one person with two natures. Y'all tracking on that? Okay, here, let me give you another example. John 6, verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, so here we have the Son of Man, a title associated with Christ's human nature, is juxtaposed and connected to his divine nature, namely his eternal preexistence. Okay? Before the incarnation, the Son of God existed and reigned with the Father in heaven. Well, the Son of Man, the, the human nature, was not preexistent. He wasn't anywhere before. Okay? To use the, the language of the text. Okay? Again, the only way to harmonize texts like this, right, to understand our scriptures is for Christ to be one person with two natures. This is why it's important we understand our mediator in this way. Lastly, um, this description of Christ is crucial. It's critical for our salvation. Okay? Now, I hinted at this earlier in previous lectures, but let's just kind of pull this all together. Okay? <clears throat> the Son of God came to be the Savior for mankind, and the first requirement is the perfect keeping of the law. This is why Christ was born under the law, Galatians 4.4, right? Every single man, woman, child has failed to fulfill God's law, apart from one. Christ came in the flesh so that he might fulfill the law on our behalf, Matthew 5.17, right? However, he had, I'm sorry, had he been only man, right, he would have failed, just like Finney mentioned earlier, right? His divine nature allows him to keep the law perfectly. But keeping the law wasn't enough. Right, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And a blood sacrifice requires a flesh and blood body. God himself couldn't do this. This is why 
Christ says, Hebrews 10.5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. The Son of God took on flesh so that he might be sacrificed. Prepared like a lamb for slaughter. Without the incarnation, without our mediator taking on two natures in one person, Christ could not really die on the cross. And, and the cross would be meaningless. As, as perplexing as the hypostatic union can be at times, and, and it can be, it's essential to our salvation. This is why any other religion is a, is a false religion, because they do not profess um, the true Savior of man. They don't believe in the biblical Jesus, the Jesus who is both God and man in one person, because this is the God who saves, and it can't be any other way. We trust in, as, as our answer says, the works of the whole person, both his divine and his human nature. Okay. Does anybody have any questions on that question? Cool. Okay. Let's jump into question 41. <clears throat> I'll read the question. And this, this is a short one. I'll read the answer. Why was our mediator called Jesus? Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. So again, this one's pretty straightforward. Um, allow me to make two quick points regarding this answer. First, biblical names have meaning. Uh, and the name Jesus is no different. Uh, the name Jesus is a Greek form of the Hebrew word, or the Hebrew name rather, corresponding to uh, Yahshua or Yeshua meaning Jehovah is salvation, or Jehovah saves. Okay, that's what it means, Jehovah saves. The name Jesus was given a symbolic hope for the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah. And this Messiah would purify his people and save them from oppression. But Matthew 1.21 points to a more important theme here. Okay, Matthew 1.21 says this, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as most of us know, Gabriel here, speaking to Joseph, right? And he says uh, to name the baby Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So it's not simply to save them from oppression, which he, he does, which at that time would have been Rome, right? It was to save man from the wrath of God and render unto them forgiveness of sins, and of course, who gave Jesus his name? Right? It wasn't Gabriel. <clears throat> He's just the messenger. It was God himself. Gabriel was a messenger of the Lord, and that's, that's really what an angel is. In fact, the Hebrew word for angel can be translated as angel or messenger, depending on the context. Now, keep in mind, too, that Jesus was our Savior's personal name. Okay? It's not a title. We'll talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> it was a name that was used to represent a greater prophetic truth. And that's the second point I want to make here regarding his name. It reflected specific Old Testament messianic prophecies. Remember, Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. Okay? And all throughout the Old Testament, there have been promises and prophecies of the one born of a virgin who will come to save his people. That one specifically is Isaiah 7.14. Right? Isaiah 53.6 says, For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Right? We all know Ezekiel 36. Right? To cleanse us that we may receive a heart of flesh, place of our heart of stone. 
right? So many Old Testament prophecies. And in this, we are reminded that even in the name of our Savior, God is restoring the covenantal imbalance that occurred in the garden. In the name of Jesus, God saves his people. In the name of Jesus, God has crushed the head of the serpent. This is why there is power in the name of our God. Right? This is why Paul can say in Philippians 2.7, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only in this Jesus is there hope for mankind. And that gets um, to our third point, uh, what great truths of faith are involved in his name. Uh, did I say I had two points to make? I have three, sorry. Um, <clears throat> we read in Matthew one twenty one right, that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, this really is a profound statement, right, because it tells us simply that Jesus, in Jesus' name, we learn several things, right? Number one, salvation from sin is accomplished by the divinely provided Redeemer. And this is, this is nothing we can do ourselves, right? He does the saving. And yes, that does sound distinctly Calvinistic, and that's because it is, right? Jesus, i.e. God, does all the saving. So every... God throws you the life raft metaphor breaks down here, right? What does it all mean? Well, let me tell you. Next time you talk to one of your Arminian buddies, right, you look them square in the eye, and you say, if you're a Christian, you have to be a Calvinist. <laughs> if you're going to say the name of your Savior is Jesus, the same one from Matthew 121, the one who saves his people, he does the saving, this Jesus. Well, um, I hate to tell you, Bubba, but uh, that's, that's Calvinist theology. He does all the saving. Second point from Matthew 121. And in the name of Jesus, uh, we, we see he actually, actually saves his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. He doesn't merely give people a chance at redemption, right, or an opportunity of salvation, he actually saves his people. You might have heard it put this way, right? Christ's atoning death um, is sufficient per, for all people, but he only effectually applied it to his elect people, right? Christ's death is effectual for his people. In other words, <clears throat> Christ's death is enough to save every human being, absolutely, right? If every human being would but repent and believe. But we know through Scripture only certain people have been chosen by God's grace to believe in His Son and His saving work. It's in the name of Jesus we see that God does all that is necessary to guarantee His people will be totally and finally saved. Again, it is inconsistent to defend Arminian theology while at the same time you say that you believe in the name of Jesus, the one who will save His people. Because Arminian theology only makes salvation possible or available. It gives people the opportunity of faith. You have to choose, right? Rather, Christ actually saves his people. And the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart. And they receive the gift of faith. 
Lastly, Jesus saves his people. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one clearly states this, right? Those whom the Father elected before the foundation of the world, those, uh, these are in the name of Jesus for whom he shed his blood, and these are whom the Holy Spirit applies the redemption of Christ and his atoning work. Our Trinitarian God is not schizophrenic in those he chooses to save, right? It's not like God the Father elected some, but then Jesus goes and dies for the whole world, and the Holy Spirit only applies it to some people, and then we've got free will, and we've got to figure out what to do with all that, right? No, no. Our triune God is unified in his will, and he's unified in his plan for salvation. Okay? So the idea of Christ saving the whole world is totally out of the window as well. And yet again, have I said this already? I feel like I have. You can't believe Arminian theology and still believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah saves. He will save his people. Maybe the next time you're talking to somebody about the doctrines of grace and they get uncomfortable and it happens all the time, right? <clears throat> this is a different approach you can take with them. Just show them. Matthew one twenty one. Jesus means Jehovah saves. God does all the saving. He actually saves his people, and he will do it. Absolutely. You know, Shakespeare said, you know, what's in a name? Well, in this case, quite a lot. <laughs> okay? All right. <clears throat> Questions on that one? Yes, I have. <laughs> I, t- I tell them to go read the book of Galatians uh, because Paul addresses that uh, very topic about how you're, you're no longer Greek or Jew. You're no longer slaver for you or one in Christ. Um, so it's not, about, it, it's not about trying to identify with your Jewish heritage anymore. Um, it's not about, to, in fact, you're, you're fleeing that. It, it's not about trying to... Um, say the name of Jesus as trying to identify as a Jew anymore. Um, so if, if people try to say, well, you're, you're not saying the right name because you're not saying the Hebrew name. No, actually, that's not true. Go read Galatians. Um, Paul says you should be fleeing from that and being united as one body in the Christ. So, yeah, Paul addresses that quite clearly in the book of Galatians. So that's what I tell people to do. <laughs> Good question. Any more any more questions? Awesome. All right. Question 42. I'll read it, and then uh, let's read this one together. <clears throat> Why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate, both of his humiliation and exaltation. Okay, cool. So we're just rolling right through these questions. And um, I hope you guys don't mind. I mean, I don't want to spend unnecessary time on these questions um, if there's no need. If I thought there was something to bring up, I definitely would. Um, But this one particularly does have a little more meat to it. Um, Now, this... 
this one is going to tee up nicely for us the following questions uh, in the catechism because the next three are going to specifically address how Christ executes each of these offices, prophet, priest, and king. Okay? The catechism also details Christ's humiliation uh, as well as his exaltation. So those also are specific questions. Um, this is, again, kind of our foundation question. What I'd like us to focus on here really is kind of the first half, Uh, and I want to start by addressing and understanding Christ as a title. Okay, so contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, let me share a little funny story with you. So when I was in seminary, I had to write a ton of papers, okay, and I had a certain person QC all of my papers for me. Okay, uh, typos, grammar, punctuation, all that good stuff, right? <clears throat> this person was an unbeliever, and I'm, I'm intentionally leaving their name out, so I, you know, I don't want to embarrass them or anything. And I deliberately sent them all of my papers for two reasons, okay? That one, they're really good at writing, um, and I, I, I wanted them to edit my work. Uh, but two, I wanted to use my papers kind of as a constant saturation of the gospel and just, a, you know, apologetic discussion of sorts, right? Anyway, in formal papers, if you're going to use someone's name more than once, the standard practice is to use their full name one time, and then later on in the paper, you only use their last name, okay? Well, on one particular paper, my reviewer sent their notes back, and one particular comment kept reoccurring. The individual noted that I said Jesus' name earlier in the paper and that I should simply refer to him as Christ later on. (laughs) Yeah, I lost count of how many times that was annotated in the margins. (laughs) Um, Now, if Jesus' last name was actually Christ, right, then this note would have been correct. Um, However, I say again, Jesus' last name is not Christ, okay? Christ refers to Jesus' title. I think the confusion comes from most people in the fact that this title is often uh, accompanied with the personal name Jesus a lot in the scriptures, okay? However, we know Christ is a title by the use of the definite article in scripture. Okay, let me just give you an example. This is Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16. He, that being Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, so Christ is the English form of the Greek word Christos, meaning Messiah or anointed one. Okay? So to call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, these are all a matter of, of language or, or preference. The, the meaning is the same. Okay? For example, we read in Psalm 2.2, the kings of the earth set themselves <clears throat> and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed on uh, this text, Voss notes in his commentary, um, the Hebrew word Messiah could equally be correctly translated by the word Christ, for the meaning is the same. Okay, so the, the, the point here is that Christ, Messiah, anointed one, um, whether you're going to translate Christos that way, it's, it's, it all has the same meaning. The other thing we need to remember with this title is that it bears covenantal significance. Okay. Matthew 1.1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, pastor preached on this not too long ago, right? The first sentence tells us everything we need to know. Everything we need to know about who Jesus is. 
Okay, we already know Jesus, his name means Jehovah saves, right? So we got that right off the bat. But now we're told that Jesus is the Christ, but not only that, he's the son of David and Abraham. Well, Christ, or anointed one, the first, first points us back to David as the anointed king of Israel. The designation of Messiah came to summarize several strands of Old Testament uh, expectation, especially the promise of an anointed one, and it relates to David. He is the one who would righteously rule God's people, 2 Samuel 7. Okay? Remember, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, so this invoked images of the Messiah with a royal lineage who would establish a throne in Jerusalem and a kingdom in Israel. Now the text also says he's the son of Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham. Remember, it established Israel as God's chosen people. <laughs> that a, a numerous populace as vast as the stars right, would be a blessing through his line. That through him, God's people would enter the promised land. You know, let me just preface that. God's chosen people, I say that because I've explained that to you already, right? You understand that in its context. Okay. <laughs> At long last, Jehovah saves. The Messiah is here, okay? It is Jesus the Christ. Now, the Catechism says our mediator was given this title of Christ because he was anointed. Let's, let's, uh, let's examine that, okay? When it comes to this idea of being anointed, there's two things that I want to draw to your attention here. First, as always, there's an Old Testament connection. Okay, in fact, uh, the Old Testament, the kings and the priests were often anointed with oil to set them apart in their special offices. Uh, Voss argues, uh, and I think he's right, that this oil of anointing was a symbol of the Holy Spirit who would enter their hearts and equip them with the ability and wisdom for their duties as kings or priests. It's a quote from Voss. Um, let me, I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 10.1. Uh, this is God's appointment of Saul. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you? to be prince over his people of Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So here we see Samuel anointing Saul with oil as a symbol of his inauguration. Okay? And this is not an isolated incident. Okay? Uh, it happens all over. Let me give you one other example. Second uh, Kings 9. This is when Jehu is made king over Israel. So he, that's Jehu, arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. So the point here is that the idea of anointing in the Old Testament was setting a person apart to be in a special office with a symbol of the Holy Spirit as... Um, a sign of the person's work in that person's life. Okay? But as we know, these kings and priests were merely types, shadows, pointing to Jesus. They were always pointing forward to Jesus. He is the true, final priest, king. Okay? And while all these others were anointed with oil, the symbol, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's the second thing. That's the second thing I wanted you to note. Matthew, let's read from Matthew 3.16. It 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, what are we to make of this? <clears throat> a couple of things. A couple of things I want you to take away from here. Number one, it is here the Spirit of God anoints Jesus as Israel's King and Messiah. Okay? The Spirit commissions him as God's righteous servant, tying right back to Isaiah 42.1. 42, Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay? <clears throat> Christ saw it happen. Mark 1.10. John saw it happen. John 1.33. And it's very likely that the whole crowd that was there saw it. Okay, this was intended to be Christ's public inauguration. Second, the resting of the Spirit confirms Jesus' role as prophet. Now, the Christ, as God, did not need to receive the Spirit. Okay, but it was prophesied that, Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, he was to be a prophet, and prophets always spoke by the Spirit of God who came upon them. Christ was to execute uh, the office of prophet, not in his divine nature, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, uh, Isaiah 11.2 goes on to say the Messiah is most richly endowed with a threefold fullness in the Spirit. Okay? When you read the rest of Isaiah 11.2, it says, in wisdom and understanding, okay? so he's equipped for leadership, counsel and might, so he can carry out his wise plans, okay? And lastly, knowledge and fear of the Lord, okay? So he displays perfect holiness. Now, in regards to Matthew 3.16, it's the last thing I want you to notice, um, and this is kind of the million-dollar question. Why the form of a dove? Why a dove? Now, some translations will say in the form of a dove, or others will say like a dove, Okay? Whether this was a little, literal dove or the representation of a dove, it's kind of hard to say. Regardless, um, Matthew Henry makes several observations in his commentary, which I, I think are very helpful here, um, from, we'll say, the spirit's dove-like appearance, okay? however you want to call it. Uh, I, think, I think they're worth noting here. Number one, the spirit of Christ is an innocent dove. It's an innocent dove. Doves are mentioned throughout Scripture, actually, in reference to people. And sometimes it's not good, actually. Uh, in Hosea 7, for example, it said, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. That's Hosea 7.11. Uh, this likely refers to Israel going back and forth between Egypt and Assyria. Israel's trying to secretly deceive both nations. Um, and they're opposing powers, actually. And Israel's trying to make alliances with both of them for security reasons. <clears throat> Needless to say, it didn't work. Um, but with Christ, we see the dove noted here as it should be, right? For its admirable and innocent qualities. As compared to something, say, maybe like an eagle, right? Majestic. An eagle's majestic in its own right. But the eagle's a bird of prey. The spirit takes the shape of a dove. Innocent and offensive, Henry says. <clears throat> Qualities that we as Christians should exemplify, right? Wise as serpent and innocent as doves. You know, I find it interesting too how the dove is contrasted in Scripture. In Hosea, 
especially in the book of Hosea, right? Israel is pictured as the adulterous wife. Those apart from God are like silly doves without sense. But in Christ, we are the pure and innocent doves, right? For we have all been given the same Holy Spirit. We were once silly doves, but no longer, right? We have, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one spirit, the same Holy Spirit have all been baptized into one body. Here's the second thing. It's no coincidence that the dove was the only type of bird offered in Levitical sacrifices. Okay? That's actually from Leviticus 1.14. For it is Christ, and this is Hebrews 9.14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. In the coming of the dove-like spirit, we see foreshadowed Christ's atoning, perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. Number three, and this is the last thing, it's reminiscent of the dove during the great flood. In Genesis 8, Noah sends out the dove, right, to see if the waters have receded. Uh, And after several trips, the dove comes back. Uh, One time he comes back with an olive branch, uh, and then eventually, not at all, right? This indicates the waters have gradually receded, receded, and now it's safe to disembark. We see in the olive branch and the presence of the dove itself, right, glad tidings, and uh, of peace as the waters of judgment have finally gone back. It speaks of God's goodwill toward men, that he is is for the good of his people. The same can be said for the Spirit who descends in the form of a dove on Christ. At last, God's goodwill toward men has arrived, and he will come to usher in peace. The fact that God is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself is a joyful message. A message that comes upon the wings of a dove. And it is, of course, reaffirmed by the Father who immediately says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the Catechism moves on to say our mediator was called Christ. And in so doing, it resulted in two things. Right? He was set apart. And he was given full authority and power. Let's look at this idea of being set apart. Now, normally, we think of something being set apart when we're talking about our faith, right? Uh, At least I I do. As, As us, we are set apart for God. We think of how we're dedicated to the Lord's use so that we're bound, right, in no other sense. In a sense, it's really that's speaking directly to our sanctification. But sanctification is not what's in view when we talk about Christ being set apart for uh, he was set apart for a very special purpose, right? That he might be uh, perfectly set to fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, and king. Christ had come and successfully did execute each role. And by the way, no other person other than Jesus Christ can perfectly hold all three offices at the same time. Okay, Adam tried, he failed. We make feeble attempts daily, and we'll talk about how we hold all three offices later on, Um, but we also fail, right, in our sinful states. Um, Only Christ can fulfill all three roles perfectly at the same time. But you can easily see throughout the Old Testament in types and shadows how the Messiah was to come and succeed where sinful man failed. 
And the only way he could do it is if he was given the ability to do so. And that's, that's what our catechism says, right? The answer says he was given full authority and ability, full power. And I, I love every single one of the proof texts for this section because it answers something different regarding this truth. So John 6, 27 is going to answer who gave him this authority and power, okay? It says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So, for this text, right, earlier in the chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000, so much so that there's, right, an abundance of food left over. Then he walks on water, that um, teaches that he is the bread of life, right? It's miracle after miracle, it's great teaching after great teaching. Then we get to our text. The crowds go looking for Jesus, and, and they feed him this, this, I always read it, it's kind of this ridiculous line, oh, Rabbi, when, when did you get here, right? And Jesus says, no, you're not looking for me. You're looking for bread, okay? <clears throat> you're not looking for me because of who I am. You're looking for me because you want more bread, okay? In other words, they only sought Jesus for the physical or material benefits. They tried to treat God like a genie. Okay, and that's when we get to our verse, verse 27. Don't worry about temporal food. Pursue the spiritual food that I will give you. Pursue me, because God the Father has set his seal on me, right? And as most of us know, God the Father has declared his son to be authentic and true. The Father has given Christ full power and authority to do things like perform miracles, forgive sins, execute the three offices. All this to say his authority and power comes from the Father. Here's the second text, and it's going to answer what is the breadth of his authority and power. Most of us know this well. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, this should be no surprise to us, right? Christ's power and authority is total and complete. I'm sure we all have heard this quote, but it bears repeating, right? Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, over all does not cry, mine. Right? The Father has given Christ total and complete sovereign authority over all creation, and its inhabitants, right? Third, and here's the last question that it answers. It comes from Romans 1, 3, and 4. <clears throat> One, uh, when? When was the me uh, Messiah given this messianic power, okay? Romans 1, 3 through 4, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, as we know quite well at this point, verse 3 points out how the eternal Son of God assumed humanity to become the Messianic King. Okay? But verse 4 is where it gets interesting. This is where we get our, our when. Okay? This passage says, Jesus was declared by God, the Father, to be the Son of God in power when he was raised from the dead. <clears throat> and later installed at God's right hand as the Messianic King. Now, don't misunderstand. 
as the eternal Son of God, He has reigned and ruled forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay? But what Paul says in verse 4 is that Jesus as the God-man, reigning in messianic power, began at a certain point in salvific history. And that moment was when he was raised from the dead through the Holy Spirit. Christ's power is always connected to the holiness of the Spirit as he works in the New Covenant age. And the Catechism specifies this authority and ability is both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Now, we will discuss the details of each estate in future questions, so I don't want to do that here. Just remember, Christ's estate of humiliation speaks to his incarnation in becoming man. His exaltation is his post-resurrected and glorified state where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now, I'm going to land the plane here. Before we conclude this question, I want to mention one thing briefly. We just said that Christ's power and authority began at his resurrection. But here we see the divine's mention in our answer that his full authority and ability existed in his estate of humiliation. How's that possible? Christ's humiliation began at his birth, in his incarnation, right? Not his resurrection. It would appear our timelines are off. Is that the case? No. Don't worry. Not at all. From his incarnation, the Christ has always been the Christ. And the authority and power bestowed to the Christ by the Father is progressive in nature. Okay, It's progressive in nature. In other words, there is a redemptive historical aspect to this. Okay, In the same way that from the moment of his birth, the Christ has always held the three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Okay? Yet these three offices were made manifest progressively in their natures. Okay? And they culminated in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. Okay? In the same way, the full authority and power of the Christ exists in the state of his humiliation, yet escalates, as Paul says, in his state of exaltation. Okay, and keep in mind as well that th- there's an element of Christ's humiliation that still exists, okay? Even, even in his exaltation. Christ humbled himself by becoming man, right? And even in his exalted status, he's still a man, right? He is still seated at the right hand of God, and he will maintain that human state for eternity. So there's still an element of his Humility that still remains. So, this is just another aspect in which the authority and power is given to Christ in his humiliation, um, escalated or eschatologically realized, if you will, um, at his resurrection. Any questions? Questions? Everybody's like, I have no idea what you just said. But it sounds good. (laughs) All right. Let me close this in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truth that is our Messiah, who is indeed fully God and fully man, who has accomplished redemption and salvation on our behalf, who was raised for our justification, and who sits at your right hand with full authority and power, who is putting 
his enemies under, your, under his feet and who will come again and we look forward to that great day. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the meantime, Lord, we will fellowship as your people in one body and we will worship you on your Lord's day, your Sabbath day. We pray that you would be with us in all these things through your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.